try to give an overview of what the Lord Jesus does in chapter 14. We won't go through it phrase by phrase, but you may want to do that just for your own uh, devotional study in it. But notice, right at the beginning, in Peter's uh, difficult situation, Jesus says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. The NIV says trust in God. That's a different word, but believe in God. Believe also in me. And I think that Christ is giving a clue that the, the beginning of the solution to every problem that I have is what I believe about God. Now, uh, I already spoke to that yesterday, and we, we gave some clues about what has happened in our day with regard to a re-emphasis on that area, which is good. For a time, I used to go back and think of all the bad things that happened in 1973. I don't know, do some years hit you as to, it just seems like a, a host of things happened. And in 1973, all kinds of bad things happened. Uh, Watergate, aftermath, the Israeli war, Roe versus Wade, Supreme Court decision which has killed 20 million babies since that time, etc. Just a mess in 1973. But also in 1973, Chuck Colson came to Christ. And look at the product of that. And uh, in that same year, J.I. Packer's book became a bestseller. The first time in history, the book on God became a bestseller. Uh, his book, Knowing God, uh, based on that verse in Daniel 11:32, they that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. Tremendous book. A series of uh, magazine articles that he never dreamed would become a book, but uh, were published by InterVarsity not only became a book, but became a bestseller. And since that day, uh, we have heard a great deal more about um, the person of God. Uh, somebody reminded me that a year ago, last October, our faculty wife, uh, Myrna Alexander, any of you know her, uh, came here for the October, I guess, women's retreat. And they, by the way, are now in Romania uh, after the inspiration of uh, Joseph Sohn. It goes on, you see. Uh, people stimulate people. And uh, so uh, uh, Myrna Alexander is over there, and she wrote a book... I think it was one of her first ones 
on uh, women. Behold your God. I can't remember the title of that. It seems like that was it. And it must have gone through 20 or 30 printings across the country. Women all over America were using it in women's Bible study classes. And she has got to be just one of the greatest examples of what she was writing about. Godly woman, Myrna Alexander. So uh, there has been a whole new emphasis of books on God in the last 15 years, but particularly from 1973 uh, for the next 10 years or so. Tremendous thing. That's, that's the beginning of the cure. That's the long-range uh, solution. There is no quick fix. Uh, there is no instant maturity. Uh, and Jesus didn't give to Peter a quick fix. But rather, he's saying to him, don't, uh, don't lose your grip. Don't give up. Uh, hang on. Don't be loosed from your moorings. Uh, how? By believing in God. Believe in God. And then he adds on to it, believe also in me. And you'll remember that they had grown up under the basic truth that God was driving home, that there is, what? One God. And the Old Testament didn't teach about uh, a triune God, basically, for it didn't need to. It didn't need to do that until Jesus Christ was on the scene uh, as God. Now there had to be an explanation of that. And so you could go back to the Old Testament and see how the writing left room for the three but did not directly teach the triune God. Plural pronouns and all of those kinds of things. So we see plenty of room for the fact that God is triune eternally that, uh, uh, but it, that was not a basic teaching. Know ye that the Lord our God is one was the teaching of the Old Testament. But that one was the same one that we use when we say husband and wife become one flesh. It is plurality in unity. So uh, the Old Testament carefully states the doctrine of the triune God, but not frontally states it. Now you've got Jesus on the scene. And Jesus is saying, I and the Father are one. So you'll find this all the way through this chapter 14. Now, what you have in chapter 14 is kind of a shortened uh, course in Theology 101 on the doctrine of God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. If you were to run down through this chapter you would find the repeated statements about the Father. In fact, if you counted it up, 23 times in this one chapter, Christ refers to the Father. There is no chapter in all the Word of God that says as much about the Father as chapter 14. Now, keep that in mind 
Here is Peter in this desperate situation with difficult circumstances. Here is Christ talking about uh, just before that night the things that are going to happen to him when the soldiers come to take him how much more traumatic could you get by way of circumstances than what they were experiencing then and what does Jesus do in the midst of all of that he says let's talk about the father <laughs> what a lesson for us in the midst of our trial Let's talk about God, because that will elevate me. That will lift me up. So what Jesus does is begin the process of lifting Peter out of the bottom of the pits, where he must have descended, having been told what he has just been told. He couldn't have received worse news than what he got. Before the cock crows, you're going to deny three times that you even know me. Couldn't be told anything worse than that. In the midst of that, he begins lifting Peter. How does he lift him? He lifts him with truth. Oh, I wish I could say that eloquently in such a way that it would be emblazoned on your mind and you would never forget it. The way we lift people is with truth. And mind you, these are not nice little stories in here as much as nice stories might be entertaining at some time. It is straight propositional truth. Propositional revelation. And we have... Some people today who really debunk that as though that is excessive rationalization. Well, Jesus didn't. Jesus highlighted it. So here's some of the truth. First, he, he gives them some eschatological truth. Listen to it. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. In other words, there is ample space. Uh, and if it weren't the truth, I would have told you that. Now, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. The place is already there, he said. There are already full accommodations. But these places are going to be specially prepared places. And uh, a little later on, maybe we'll get a chance to relate to how is that place being prepared? What part am I having in the preparation of the place? Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. What is he going to be doing? How will he be preparing a place for them? Turn back to that, uh, John, that Luke 22 passage again and see if you see a clue there. Uh, in Luke 22 and uh, verse 
32. How, what is one way at least that Jesus prepares for us? After you've read uh, Luke 22:32, still keeping your finger there in John 14 because we're going back there. Also look at Hebrews chapter 7. Can you get all of these in there? Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25. Do you see anything in Luke 22:32 and Hebrews 7:25 that would give you a clue? as to what Jesus is doing today. All right. He is interceding. He is praying for me. Ever dwell on that very much? Um, does Does it bless you when somebody tells you, I'm praying for you? It does me. But I'll tell you what blesses me more is to know that Jesus is. Because <laughs> he never prays out of the will of God. And he says, Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan wants you. Oh, he wants you so bad he can taste it. Satan has desired to have you. That's the word for lust, by the way. Satan is lusting after you. He's desired to have have you. He's licking his chops. Oh, he'd like to get his fingers into you. Remember Job? God, let me at him. Let me at him. And we'll see whether he's for real or not. The devil is saying, let me at Peter. Just let me at him. Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith fail not. Did his faith fail that night? No. Did it look like it had failed? Yes. But it didn't. That's what's wrong with going by externalities. For the seed of faith is in the heart where there has been belief. I I think I could guarantee you that there was not one shred of external evidence that night that Peter was a follower of Jesus Christ. But he was. And his faith didn't fail, even that night. But he sure hid it well. Because Jesus never ceases to make intercession for us. Jesus wants us to pray. (coughs) And he tells us men ought always to pray and not to faint. Tells us the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. 
the fact is, oh, C.S. Lewis deals with this so beautifully in his Mere Christianity, that uh, for Christ to pray for me does not take any of his time away from praying for you. Because he's infinite. So one thing at least he's doing that's going to have a lot to do with that place by way of its preparation is this intercession. And also, the other side of it is what I'm doing in response to that. That's going to have a lot to do with that place also. Not whether the place is going to be there or not, it's already there. But the preparation of it, the place and the preparation of it, is being determined now. We'll get into that a little bit more. So he says, Peter, uh, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you, that where I am, there you may be also. Take you to be with me, that you may be where I am. Now, think again about Peter. What do you suppose he thought then? You've got to be kidding. Lord, if what you just said a couple of seconds ago is true, then there's already a place for me. They call it hell. And that'd be where a lot of people would put him, wouldn't they? But uh, no, he belongs to Jesus. There's a place reserved for him in heaven. Why? Because he's been clothed in the righteous garment of Christ. Where I go is dependent upon who I know. What I do after I get there will be dependent upon what I have done with what he gave me while I've been here. but where I go is dependent upon who I know. It really pays to know the right people at times. So because I know Jesus, because I know the Father through Jesus, I will spend eternity with him. But I'll bet you Peter was frustrated at this point, and uh, he thought, no way, no way. If what you've said already is true, there's no way that I'm going to be in heaven. Well, I don't know what he went on, so that's all an uninspired conversation. But I know he must have been thinking. Must have been thinking something. And this revelation was not what he would get from his fellow uh, disciples. They were probably the ones saying, Oh, Peter, you rat. But Jesus goes on, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. Got it again, except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. 
Clean your ears out, Philip. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you for such a long time. Do you see that this is, this is theology 101? This is teaching about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. How do they relate one to another, etc.? That's all this is. He's teaching him about God. And you might say, what does that have to do with anything we're talking about here? It has everything to do with it, ultimately. But it's a long-range approach. And it certainly starts with thinking, doesn't it? And it's the kind of thing that renews my mind so that I'm transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And he knows that's what Peter needs, and so he keeps giving him more of it. He goes all the way through this chapter. Now, he not only tells about... <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> not only tells about the Father, but he tells about himself as he goes along. Um, verse 12, I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I've been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. If you love me, you will obey what I command, and I will ask the Father. Now you have another thing. Notice what he says now. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor, helper, to be with you forever. Later on, we're going to get into that concept of the counselor, the helper, the Holy Spirit. And here he calls him the Spirit of Truth specific designation. Why does he relate the Spirit to truth here? I'll give you another helper. He's going to be with you forever. He's not going to leave you. I'm going to leave you now, soon, but he's not going to leave you. The world can't accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you, will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Well, how does that work out? The Spirit will come. Christ will come. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Oh, he's added one more there. The Spirit of God indwells us. God the Father indwells us. God the Son indwells us. The triune God indwells the believer. You expect that might do something for believers? To recognize that? So you see what he does? He goes on here. Uh, building up their knowledge of God. He doesn't just tell them, believe in God and then forget it. He says, believe in God. Now I'm going to tell you what that's all about. I'm going to tell you about the Father. I'm going to tell you about the Son, myself. I'm going to tell you about the Spirit. And there's much more that you can learn. But I can't give it all to you now. But I'm going to give you enough. Now, look what happens when they get to the end. Verse 30. Oh, I've got to pick it up in 28. It's just too good to leave it. You heard me say, I am going away, and I'm coming back to you. You heard me say that. That's a good principle of teaching, isn't it? Repetition. If you love me, 
you would be glad that I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. Back to it again. That's what it's all about. Just believe. 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 I've given you these truths now so that you will believe. I will not speak with you much longer, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold on me. That reminds me of greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. He has no hold on me. But the world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. What condescension. Come now, let us leave. So they leave the room. Okay, get the picture in your mind. We're in the borrowed upper room where it all started there. We go out down the stairs through the narrow dung-strewn streets of Jerusalem, probably out the dung gate, and make our way around the perimeter of the city wall. How many of you have been there to Israel? Is that all? Oh, my land. Oh, you ought to go. Sell your car. Yeah. I used to say... uh, Oh, listen, just buy a good $45 atlas, and that's all you need. You don't need to tramp all over Israel. Oh, mercy. Oh, Lord, forgive me. Sure you can. Well, we, uh, we do an Israel study tour every, every year, usually in March, sometimes in December. And one of the faculty goes, two of them go each time. But don't miss that opportunity. Uh, don't go to the Bahamas instead of Israel. Don't go to Hawaii instead of Israel. Uh, go to Israel. Go to Hawaii after you've been to Israel several times. My wife doesn't usually care about going back someplace after we've been there once, but she wants to go to Israel as much as she can go every time. And uh, and it's not just walking where Jesus walked. That's not it. I mean, that's fun too. But um, the, the Catholics have covered up so much of where he walked that you really can't find it anymore. It's got gold all over it, you know, and uh, the cathedrals and so forth. But uh, to, to get your geographic and historical perspective, that's the key. And to see that when Abraham comes into Shechem, where that is, and what kind of travel he made down the, through the hill country to the Negev in the south, and what the south was like. When you walk in the Negev for a little bit, you'll understand why the children of Israel murmured and grumbled. The heat is so oppressive. God, why did you bring us out here? Why didn't you leave us in Egypt? Uh, 
that is a phenomenal. Your Bible study will never be the same. I guarantee you of that. It will never be the same. So my little promo on Israel. And don't worry about the war. That's the safest place in the world to be. Those Jews know how to use those Tommy guns. <laughs> and everybody's running around with one. I mean, look like a bunch of little kids running around with Tommy guns. And uh, they take care of that place. You notice how they're able to respond? Uh, we, we're not able to respond too well as a country. They know how to respond. They go after it. So, uh, uh, don't miss it. Great, great. But, Fran and I will luxuriate in this. You, uh, you move out the gate, and you come around the city wall, and right there at the foot of that city wall where a whole pile of excavation is being done, exciting excavation today. Well, that's the Kidron Valley there. There's a tomb of Absalom, etc., etc., down the Kidron Valley. And then you make your way over by where the east gate is. It's one day going to be opened up. And out there on the horizon are all those tombstones that are one day are going to be disrupted. Can you imagine what's going to happen in that graveyard when Jesus touches his foot there and that thing comes alive? <laughs> uh, <laughs> You go across the Kidron Valley over to the Garden of Gethsemane. Okay, that's where they're headed now, right? And that's where they will end up where Jesus will pray the Lord's Prayer, which is really the Lord's Prayer. What we call the Lord's Prayer is the Disciples' Prayer, not the Lord's Prayer, but uh, the Lord's Prayer, John chapter 17. Okay, somewhere between the upper room and there, somewhere between those two, John 15 happens. Now, you've got to get that in mind. This is very important. Uh, John 15 is stimulated by something they see between the upper room and the Garden of Gethsemane. And what is the figure of speech in John 15? The vine, right, which is used as an extended metaphor in John 15. Now, you've got to get back to school again, right? All right, uh, Alvy, you remember what a simile, metaphor? Well, I'm really pressing you now. I mean, we're going back 50 years here. <laughs> oh, me. Uh, that's so important in Bible study, to, uh, to understand literary genre the form of literature that is being used. That's why translation is important, how it's done. Uh, if something is a parable or a metaphor or a simile, a figure of speech, you've got to know that. If it is in a plain literal statement, you've got to know that. You know, you're going to see that in these two chapters. Uh, so that little background. Now, they've, they've left there. They see a grapevine. It could have been a, a sculptured grapevine above the gate that could have been or it could have been an actual vine on the slopes of the Kidron Valley they wouldn't be there today uh, Gehenna is down there a little further and uh, there's there, the population is is different there today than it was then but perhaps it was a grapevine on the slopes of the Kidron Valley 
Now, Jesus, being a master teacher that he is, was great at taking physical things and teaching spiritual lessons from them. Now, what has he just done in chapter 14? He has given them a heavy dose of straight propositional revelation. And that's hard to take. I mean, and especially if you don't understand it, you can easily go to sleep on it, right? If you notice that things that that are coming across, you don't know the word, you don't know what they're saying. (laughs) And so uh, the disciples could have gotten a little sleepy on John 14, some of them. Because this is straight, difficult, propositional truth about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and their interrelationships. That's heavy material. Now, what does Jesus do? He illustrates, he gives the illustration of the propositions with a grapevine. Now, listen to it. And we won't be able to get through all this. We'll pick it up again in the next hour. I am the true vine. Let me read from a more reliable version here. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. He is the viticulturalist, if you wanted to make this very specific. Horticulture, one division of horticulture is viticulture. That's what he's talking about. I am the true vine. You see that vine there. Now, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. He's the one who takes care of the vine. So you've got the personalities spelled out now. I'm the vine, my father's the vine dresser. Now, what's my father going to do to you? Mind you, he's just mentioned the father 23 times in John 14. Now he says, I'm going to tell you what my father is going to do for you. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now, here's where the NIV makes a horrible mistake. It says in the NIV, he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. I take issue with that. So let's look at the word. That's the word. I roll. Alpha, Iota, Rho, Omega. Got it? Got it. I roll. If you were to transliterate that, It would read like that, okay? I roll. Every branch in me not bearing fruit, he I rose it. (coughs) Now, you can look at any lexicon, or you can look at my book, Celebrating the Word, and you will find this. Uh, Look at any lexicon, and you will find that this word means 
to lift, bear, or carry. The last meaning that any lexicon will give down at the end will be to remove. And the obvious thought is, if you lift something, what have you done? You've removed it from there to here. That, however, is an entirely different concept than cuts off. There's no relationship between the two. That's an obvious theological bias. Now, when John, furthermore, wants to talk about cuts off, is there a word for that? Oh, yes. Kapto. And various forms of kapto, like Ek kapto or apo kapto, etc. Now, where would he use this? Well, I've already given you a clue earlier. Turn over to the 18th chapter. John chapter 18, verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear, ekapto. John's vocabulary included a good word for cuts off. And if what he was talking about in John 15.2 was cuts off, he uses the word for that in John 18.10. But that isn't what he's talking about. He's not talking about to cut off. He's talking about to lift, bear, or carry. Or, as the King James and most other translations put it, and none do what the NIV does in John 15 to, no translation does that. They translate it to take away. And if you understand the imagery, that's no problem at all. Now, let me tell you why that is no problem. If you were to go to Israel today, and you were to travel from Bethlehem down to Hebron, which you know, you wouldn't do that today either. They won't let you into Hebron today. But if you were to go down that way, you would pass mile after mile after mile of rolling hills and valleys of vineyards. I mean thousands and thousands of acres of vineyards. And you would see a sight that you would never see in this country, in any vineyard in America you would see grapevines that are down on the ground. Now, in our country, no matter what time of the year you're in, the grapevines are always up like this. But there, in the non-productive season, they're down like this. And then you would see some Arabs on the west bank of the Jordan doing it today the same way they did it then, namely, they would take a rock about like that, 
and Israel has more than ample rocks. And they would take a rock like that, and they would lift up the top end of that stock and put that rock under there. Then they would, one at a time, go to the next stock and put the rock under there. Go to the next stock and put the rock under there. They do that to every stock in that vineyard. A few days later, they will come along and take that rock and shove it back a little further. And they'll do that in each one. And they may come along a little later and shove it back a little further. What have they done? They have taken it away from the ground. What else have they done? They have lifted it up into the light of the sun. The further they get that, that away from the ground, the quicker the fruit will ripen. So the lifting of the vine controls the ripening of the fruit. Every branch in me, he says to his disciples, not bearing fruit. Somebody asked the question, can you be in Christ not bearing fruit? Seems to me that that statement's pretty plain, isn't it? Every branch in me not bearing fruit. But even if you didn't understand it from that passage, you should understand it from just common sense. Have you ever seen any plant that has fruit instantaneously with life? You never have. What is fruit? Fruit is the end product of a process of life. I've got three fruit trees in my front yard that are at least five years old that haven't gotten any fruit yet. Uh, they will have fruit someday. How do I know one of them is a peach tree? Because it's a label that says so. <laughs> Not because it's got peaches. But one of these days, it's going to have peaches. Every branch in me can't be in him without having life. Every branch in me not bearing fruit, he does what? Lifts it. Now, that's your word, I rule. Have I said enough to make you understand why cuts off is totally inappropriate at that point? And why you now will all go out and get a new King James Version? Yes. <laughs> all right. Now back to John 15 again. What else does the Father do? The Father not only lifts or takes away from the ground. And by the way, another little piece of that. One of the viticulturalists told me, and I have not tested this, but he said, if you leave those branches on the ground those branches will, seek, will send little tiny roots, hundreds of them, directly from the branch into the surface of the earth where they will get just enough moisture to produce the little hard sour grapes. But if you get them up off the ground, they will be forced to get their sustenance from the deep roots that go down into the moisture of the earth and produce the succulent fruit that Israel is known for. What a picture of John 17. Jesus said, I, I don't want to take you out of the world, 
He prays to the Father. Father, and here's a nice little study here. He takes this same word, iro, and puts a preposition in front of it, epiro, and is saying, Father, I don't want you to lift them that far. I don't want you to lift them out of the earth. I want them to be in the world, but not of the world. I want them in it, but not gaining their sustenance from it. What a beautiful picture. Epiro, don't lift them clear out. Just lift them far enough to produce fruit. Now, what's the next thing he says the Father will do? And every branch that bears fruit, okay, now we've got fruit coming on the branch. Every branch that bears fruit, he purges it. Purges it. The, uh, the what is this, Schofield reference here of King James? Yeah, that's, that's good rendering, purges. The NIV misses it again. Uh, what does it put? Prunes. Now, let me ask you, just common sense. Do you know of anybody that would go into a vineyard when there's fruit on the vine and prune it? Not on your life. Why? You kill it. It bleeds to death. You don't go chop vines, branches off when the fruit's on the vine. But what do you do? You purge it. You cleanse it. And that's a nice word. Uh, that takes the same word you've got up here and just puts a kata on the front of it. And so <coughs> the word is kathiro. Anybody here a nurse? Any nurses? You know what word we get from kathiro in English? Catharsis, right. What is a catharsis? It's an enema, right? Ruth said, I wish you'd quit using that illustration. Some of us develop a, a, a situation in our bowels that requires a cleansing, a purging, a catharsis, and we call that an enema. Now, some of us have the same situation in our brain, and it requires a purging from all the corruption that we've gotten from the world system. Now, Pardon the grossness of that, but I think it gets the point. Uh, and so he says, these grapes need a purging. You can go to any encyclopedia and you look at the problems that a viticulturalist has with bugs and diseases on grapes. So once he gets fruit on the vine, then what does he have to do? He has to fight off the bugs and the diseases. Every branch bearing fruit, he kathiros it. He gives it a catharsis. He purges it. Now, I, I had in my class a viticult, well, a, a, really a pomologist. He taught pomology at Purdue University for six years and, and then was called to ministry and so came to seminary and I used to really try to juice him for everything I could. Uh, no pun intended there. But I... <laughs> I was uh, working on this thing of, uh, of the, the purging. I said, what, what did they do? He said, well, we really don't know. 
But he said, we do know that if you want to increase the size of the fruit, you pick out that bud at the end of the branch that, that stops the leafing. Now we do that, I know, with other kinds of fruit. Friend, one of our board members has got apple orchards, and they do that to increase the size of those delicious apples. And he said that may be what was referred to. But uh, really, whatever it is, doesn't make any difference to the teaching because the next verse says what? Same word root in the next verse. And what does it say? Now you are what? Clean or purged. That's the same word that, unfortunately, the NIV renders prunes in the preceding verse. It's the same word. Now, we'd, we'd stop confusing people a little bit if we quit trying to be so creative in what we translate. Every branch bearing fruit, he purges it, he cleanses it. Now you are cleansed with what? What's God's DDT? The word. What word? That I've just spoken to you. That's beautiful. Had Peter changed yet? No. How come he said you're clean? He put into these disciples the word that was going to take root and produce its fruit. And uh, Jesus says, the Father does that for you. And I take it the Father does that for all who truly believe. Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. The next verse goes on to tell what you need to do to make that uh, real. So we'll just leave that for next hour, and uh, we'll talk about that then. Okay.